73. Telling Witch Stories I am worried about the tower's protections failing. If we are not safe from the unmade here, then where? From Drawer 311, Garnet Stuff it, Beard, Ved said. You did not meet the Blackthorn. I did, the other soldier said. He complimented me on my uniform and gave me his own knife for valor. Liar. Be careful, Beard said. Cal might stab you if you keep interrupting a good story. Me, Kaladin said, walking with the others of the squad on patrol. Don't bring me into this, Beard. Look at him, Beard said. He's got hungry eyes, Ved. He wants to hear the end of the story. Kaladin smiled with the others. He had joined the wall guard officially upon Elokar's orders and had promptly been added to Lieutenant Noro's squad. It felt almost cheap to be part of the group so quickly after the effort it had been to forge Bridge Four. Still, Kaladin liked these men and enjoyed their banter as they ran their patrol beat along the inside base of the wall. Six men was a lot for a simple patrol, but Azure wanted them to stay in groups. Along with Beard, Ved, and Noro, the squad included a heavyset man named Alward and a friendly man named Vasilev, a lethe but with obvious Thalen heritage. The two kept trying to get Kaladin to play cards with them. It was an uncomfortable reminder of Saw and the Parshman. Well, you won't believe what happened next, Beard continued. The Blackthorn told me. Oh, storm it, you're not listening, are you? Nope, Ved said. Too busy looking at that. He nodded back at something they'd passed. Beard snickered. Ha! Will you look at that roosting chicken? Who does he think he's impressing? Storm and waste of skin, Ved agreed. Cal grinned, glanced over his shoulder, looking for whoever Beard and Ved had spotted. Must be someone silly to provoke such a strong... It was Adolin. The prince lounged on the corner wearing a false face and a yellow suit after the new fashionable style. He was guarded by Drahi, who stood several inches taller, happily munching on some chowder. Somewhere... Beard said solemnly. A kingdom is without its banners because that fellow bought them all up and made coats out of them. Where do they think up these things? Vasilev asked. I mean, storms. Do they just say, you know what I need for the apocalypse? You know what would be really handy? A new coat. Extra sequins. They passed Adolin who nodded toward Kaladin, then looked away. That meant all was well, and Kaladin could continue with the guards. A shake of the head would have been the sign to extricate himself and return to the tailor's shop. Beard continued to snicker. When in the service of the merchant lords of Steen, he noted, I once had to swim across an entire vat of dye in order to save the prince's daughter. When I was done... I still wasn't as colorful as that preening Kremling. Alloward grunted. Storming highborns. Useless for anything but giving bad orders and eating twice as much food as an honest man. But, 
Kaladin said. How can you say that? I mean, he's light-eyed, like us. He winced. Did that sound fake? It sure is nice being light-eyed, as I, of course, have light eyes. Like you, my eyes are lighter than the dark eyes of dark eyes. He had to summon Sill several times a day to keep his eye color from changing. Like us? Beard said. Cal, what crevasse have you been living in? Are the Middlers actually useful where you come from? Some, Kaladin said. Beard and Ved, well, the whole squad except Noro, were tenors, men of the Tenth Dawn, lowest ranking in the light-eyed stratification system. Kaladin hadn't ever paid much attention. To him, light-eyes had always just been light-eyes. These men saw the world very differently. Middlers were anyone better than Eighth Dawn, but who weren't quite High Lords. They might as well have been another species for how the squadsmen thought of them, particularly those of the Fifth and Sixth Dawn, who didn't serve in the military. How was it that these men somehow naturally ended up surrounding themselves with others of their own rank? They married tenors, drank with tenors, joked with tenors. They had their own jargon and traditions. There was an entire world represented here that Kaladin had never seen, despite it residing right next door to him. Some middlers are useful, Kaladin said. Some of them are good at dueling. Maybe we could go back and recruit that guy. He was wearing a sword. The others looked at him like he was mad. Cal McKip, Beard said. Kip was a slang word that Kaladin hadn't quite figured out yet. You're a good fellow. I like how you see the best in folks. You haven't even learned to ignore me yet, which most folks decide to do after our first meal together. But you've got to learn to see the world for how it is. You can't go around trusting middlers, unless they're good officers like the High Marshal. Men like that one back there? They'll strut about telling you everything you should do, but put them on the wall during an attack, and they'll wet themselves yellower than that suit. They have parties, Bet agreed. Best thing for them, really. Keeps them out of our business. What a strange mix of emotions. On one hand, he wanted to tell them about Amaram and rant about the injustices done, repeatedly, to those he loved. At the same time, they were mocking Adolin Colin, who had a shot at the title of best swordsman in all of Alethkar. Yes, his suit was a little bright, but if they would merely spend five minutes talking to him, they'd see he wasn't so bad. Kaladin trudged along. It felt wrong to be on patrol without a spear, and he instinctively sought out Sill, who rode the winds above. He'd been given a side sword to carry at his right, a truncheon to carry at his left and a small round shield. The first thing the wall guard had taught him was how to draw the sword by reaching down with his right hand, not lowering his shield, and pulling it free of the sheath. They wouldn't use sword or truncheon when the Voidbringers finally assaulted. There were proper pikes up above for that. Down here was a different matter. The large road, it rounded the city alongside the wall, was clear and clean, maintained by the guard. But most of the streets that branched off it were crowded with people. Nobody but the poorest and most wretched wanted to be this close to the walls. How is it, 
Dad said. Those refugees can't get it through their heads that we're the only thing separating them from the army outside. Indeed, many of those they passed on side streets watched the patrol with outright hostility. At least nobody had thrown anything at them today. They see that we're fed, Noro replied. They smell food from our barracks. They're not thinking with their heads, but with their stomachs. Half of those belong to the cult anyway, Beard noted. One of these days I'll have to infiltrate that. Might have to marry their high priestess. But let me tell you, I'm terrible in a harem. Last time, the other men grew jealous of me taking all the priestess's attention. She laughed so hard at your offering she got distracted, eh? Bed asked. Actually, there's a story about... Comet Beard, the lieutenant said. Let's get ready for the delivery. He shifted his shield to his other hand, then took out his truncheon. Get intimidating, everybody. Truncheons only. The group pulled out their wooden cudgels. It felt wrong to have to defend themselves from their own people, brought back memories of being in Amaram's army bivouacking near towns. Everyone had always talked about the glories of the army and the fight on the shattered plains, and yet once towns got done gawking, they transitioned to hostility with remarkable speed. An army was the sort of thing everyone wanted to have, so long as it was off doing important things elsewhere. Noro's squad met up with another from their platoon, with two squads on the wall for duty, two squads off, and two down here patrolling. They were around forty strong. Together, the twelve men formed up to guard a slow, chull-pulled wagon that left one of their larger barrack warehouses. It carried a mound of closed sacks. Refugees crowded around, and Kaladin brandished his truncheon. He had to use his shield to shove a man who got too close. Fortunately, this caused others to back away instead of rushing the wagon. They rolled inward only one street before stopping at a city square. Sil flitted down and rested on his shoulder. They... they look like they hate you. Not me, Kaladin whispered. The uniform. What... What will you do if they actually attack? He didn't know. He hadn't come to this city to fight the populace, but if he refused to defend the squad... Storming Velalant is late, Ved grumbled. A little more time, Noro said. We'll be fine. The good people know this food goes to them eventually. Yes, after they wait hours in line at Velalant's distribution stations... Farther into the city, obscured by the gathering crowds, a group of people approached in stark violet with masks obscuring their faces. Kaladin watched uncomfortably as they started whipping their own forearms, drawing pain spren, which climbed from the ground around them, like hands missing the skin. Except these were too large, and the wrong color, and... and didn't seem human. I prayed to the sprain of the night, and they came to me, a man at their forefront shouted, raising hands high. They rid me of my pain. Oh, no, Sil whispered. Embrace them, the sprain of changes, the sprain of a new storm, a new land, a new people. Kaladin took Noro by the arm. Sir, we need to retreat. 
Get this grain back to the warehouse. We have orders to— Noro trailed off as he glanced to the increasingly hostile crowd. Fortunately, a group of some fifty men in blue and red rounded a corner and began shoving aside refugees with rough hands and barked shouts. Noro's sigh was almost comically loud. The angry crowd broke away as Velalant's troops surrounded the grain shipment. Why do we do this in the daytime? Kaladin asked one of their officers. And why don't you simply come to our warehouse and escort it from there? Why the display? A soldier moved him, politely but firmly, back from the wagon. The troops surrounded it and marched it away, the crowd flowing after them. When they got back to the wall, Kaladin felt like a man seeing land after swimming all the way to Thalina. He pressed his palm against the stone, feeling its cool, rough grain, drawing a sense of safety from it, much as he would draw out stormlight. It would have been easy to fight that crowd. They were basically unarmed. But while training prepared you for the mechanics of the fight, the emotions were another thing entirely. Sill huddled on his shoulder, staring back along the street. This is all the Queen's fault, Beard muttered softly. If she hadn't killed that ardent— Stop with that, Noro said sharply. He took a deep breath. My squad, we're on the wall next. You have half an hour to grab a drink or a nap, then assemble at our station above. And storms be praised for that, Beard said, heading straight for the stairwell, obviously planning to get to the station above, then relax. I'll happily take some time staring down an enemy army, thank you very much. Kaladin joined Beard in climbing. He still didn't know where the man had gotten his nickname. Noro was the only one in the squad who wore a beard, though his wasn't exactly inspiring. Rock would have laughed it to shame and euthanized it with a razor and some soap. Why do we pay off the High Lord's beard? Kaladin asked as they climbed. Velalant and his type are pretty useless from what I've seen. Yeah, we lost the real High Lords and the riots are to the palace, but the High Marshal knows what to do. I suspect that if we didn't share with people like Velalant, we'd have to fight them off from seizing the grain. At least this way people are eventually getting fed, and we can watch the wall. They talked like that a lot. Holding the city wall was their job, and if they looked too far afield, tried too hard to police the city or bring down the cult, they'd lose their focus. The city had to stand. Even if it burned inside, it had to stand. To an extent, Kaladin agreed. The army couldn't do everything. It still hurt. When are you going to tell me how we make all that food? Kaladin whispered. I... Beard looked around in the stairwell. He leaned in. I don't know, Cal, but the first thing that Azure did when he took command had us attack the low monastery by the eastern gates away from the palace. I know men from other companies who were on that assault. The place had been overrun by rioters. They had a soul caster, didn't they? Beard nodded. Only one in the city that wasn't at the palace when it, you know... But how do we use it without drawing the screamers? Kaladin asked. Well, Beard said, and his tone shifted. I can't tell you all the secrets, but... He launched into a story about the time Beard himself had learned to use a soul caster from the king of Herdaz. 
Maybe he wasn't the best source of information. The High Marshal, Kaladin interrupted. Have you noticed the odd thing about her shard blade? No gemstone on the pommel or crossguard. Beard eyed him, lit by the stairwell's window slits. Calling the High Marshal a she always provoked a response. Maybe that's why the High Marshal never dismisses it, Beard said. Maybe it's broken somehow? Maybe, Kaladin said. Aside from his fellow Radiance Blades, he'd seen one shard blade before that didn't have a gemstone on it. The blade of the assassin in white. An honor blade, which granted radiant powers to whoever held it. If Azure held a weapon that let her have the power of soul-casting, perhaps that explained why the Screamers hadn't found out yet. They finally emerged onto the top of the wall, stepping into sunlight. The two of them stopped there, looking inward over the flowing city, with the breaching wind blades and rolling hills. The palace, ever in gloom, dominated the far side. The wall guard barely patrolled the section of wall that passed behind it. Did you know anyone in the palace guard ranks? Kaladin asked. Are any of the men in there still in contact with families out here or anything? Beard shook his head. I got close a little while back. I heard voices, Cal, whispering to me to join them. The High Marshal says we have to close our ears to those. They can't take us unless we listen. He rested his hand on Kaladin's shoulder. Your questions are honest, Cal, but you worry too much. We need to focus on the wall. Best not to talk too much about the Queen or the palace. Like we don't talk about Azure being a woman. Her secret, Beard winced, I mean, the High Marshal's secret, is ours to guard and protect. We do a storming poor job of that, then. Hopefully we're better at defending the wall. Beard shrugged, hand still on Kaladin's shoulder. For the first time, Kaladin noticed something. No glyphward. Beard glanced at his arm, where he wore the traditional white armband that you'd tie a glyphward around. His was blank. Yeah, he said, shoving his hand in his coat pocket. Why not, Kaladin said. Beard shrugged. Let's just say uh, I know a lot about telling which stories have been made up. Nobody's watching over us, Cal. He trudged off toward their muster station, one of the tower structures that lined the wall. Sill stood up on Kaladin's shoulder, then walked up, as if on invisible steps, through the air to stand even with his eyes. She looked after Beard, her girlish dress rippling in wind that Kaladin couldn't feel. Dalinar thinks God isn't dead, she said, just that the Almighty, Honor, was never actually God. You're part of Honor. Doesn't that offend you? Every child eventually realizes that her father isn't actually God. She looked at him. Do you think anybody is watching? Do you really think there isn't anything out there? Strange question to answer, to a little bit of a divinity. Kaladin lingered in the doorway to the guard tower. Inside, the men of his squad, Platoon 7, Squad 2, which didn't have the same ring to it as Bridge 4, laughed and banged about as they gathered equipment. I used to take the terrible things that had happened to me, he said, as proof that there was no God. Then, in some of my darkest moments, I took my life as proof 
There must be something up there, for only intentional cruelty could offer an explanation. He took a deep breath, then looked toward the clouds. He'd been delivered up to the sky, and had found magnificence there. He'd been given the power to protect and defend. Now, he said, now I don't know. With all due respect, I think Dalinar's beliefs sound too convenient. Now that one deity has proven faulty, he insists the Almighty must never have been God? That there must be something else? I don't like it. So, maybe this simply isn't a question we can ever answer. He stepped into the fortification. It had broad doorways on either side leading in from the wall, while slits along the outward side provided archer positions, as did the roof. To his right stood racks of weapons and shields and a table for mess. Above that, a large window looked out at the city beyond, where those inside could get specific orders via signal flags from below. He was sliding his shield onto a rack when the drums sounded, calling the alarm. Sill zipped up behind him like a string suddenly pulled taut. Assault on the wall, Kaladin shouted, reading the drum beats. Equip up! He scrambled across the room and seized a pike from the line on the wall. He tossed it to the first man who came, then continued distributing as the men scrambled to obey the signals. Lieutenant Noro and Beard handed out shields, rectangular full shields in contrast to the small round patrolling shields they'd carried below. Form up! Kaladin shouted, right before Noro did it. Storms, I'm not their commander. Feeling like an idiot, Kaladin took his own pike and balanced the long pole, carrying it out beside Beard, who carried only a shield. On the wall, the four squads formed a bristling formation of pikes and overlapping shields. Some of the men in the center, like Kaladin and Noro, held only a pike, gripping it two-handed. Sweat trickled down Kaladin's temples. He'd been trained briefly in pike blocks during his time in Amaram's army. They were used as a counter to heavy cavalry, which was a newer development in Alethi warfare. He couldn't imagine that they'd be terribly effective atop a wall. They were great for thrusting outward toward an enemy block of troops, but it was difficult for him to keep the pike pointed upward. It didn't balance well that way. But how else were they to fight the fused? The other platoon that shared a station with them formed up on the tower's top, holding bows. Hopefully, the arrow cover mixed with the defensive pike formation would be effective. Kaladin finally saw the fused streaking through the air, approaching another section of a wall. Men in his platoon waited, nervous, adjusting glyph wards or repositioning shields. The fused clashed distantly with others of the wall guard. Kaladin could barely make out yells. The drumbeats from the drummers' stations were a holding beat, telling everyone to remain in their own section. Sill came zipping back, moving agitatedly, sweeping one way, then the other. Several men in the formation leaned out, as if wanting to break away and go charging to where their fellows were fighting. Steady, Kaladin thought, but cut himself off from saying it. He wasn't in command here. Captain Didanor, the platoon leader, hadn't arrived yet, which meant Noro was the ranking officer, with seniority over the other squad lieutenants. Kaladin gritted his teeth, straining, forcibly keeping himself from giving any kind of order until, blessedly, Noro spoke up. Now don't you break away, Hid, the lieutenant called. Keep your shields together, men. If we rush off now, we'll be easy pickings. The men reluctantly pulled back into formation. 
Eventually, the fused streaked away. Their strikes never lasted long. They would hit hard, testing reaction times at various places along the wall, and they often broke into and searched the towers nearby. They were preparing for a true assault, and, Kaladin figured, also trying to find out how the wall guard was feeding itself. The drums signaled for the squads to stand down, and the men of Kaladin's platoon lethargically trudged back to their tower. A sense of frustration accompanied them. Pent-up aggression. All of that anxiety, the rush of the battle, only to stand around and sweat while other men died. Kaladin helped rack up the weapons, then got himself a bowl of stew and joined Lieutenant Noro, who was waiting on the wall right outside the tower. A messenger used signal flags to indicate to others down in the city that Noro's platoon hadn't engaged. You have my apologies, sir, Kaladin said softly. I'll see it doesn't happen again. Um, it? I preempted you earlier, Kaladin said. Gave orders when it was your place. Oh, well, you're quite quick off the cuff, Cal. Eager for combat, I'd say. Perhaps, sir. You want to prove yourself to the team, Noro said, rubbing his wispy beard. Well, I like a man with enthusiasm. Keep your head, and I suspect you'll end up as a squad leader before too long. He said it like a proud parent. Permission, sir, to be excused from duty? There might be wounded that need my attention farther along the wall. Wounded? Cal, I know you said you had some field medicine training, but the Army's surgeons will be there already. Right. They'd have actual surgeons. Noro clapped him on the shoulder. Go in and eat your stew. There will be enough action later. Don't run too fast toward danger, all right? I'll uh, try to remember that, sir. Still, there was nothing to do but walk back into the tower, Sill alighting on his shoulder, and sit down to eat his stew. 74. Swift Spren Today I leaped from the tower for the last time. I felt the wind dance around me as I fell all the way along the eastern side, past the tower and the foothills below. I'm going to miss that. From Drawer 10-1, Sapphire. Vale leaned her head to look in through the window of the old broken shop in the market. Grund the urchin sat in his usual place, carefully stripping down an old pair of shoes for the hog's hide. As he heard Vale, he dropped his tool and reached for a knife with his good hand. He saw that it was her, then caught the package of food she tossed to him. It was smaller this time, but actually had some fruit. Very rare in the city these days. The urchin pulled the bag of food close, closing his dark green eyes, looking reserved. What an odd expression. He's still suspicious of me, she thought. He's wondering what I'll someday demand of him for all this. Where are Ma and Selend? Vale asked. She had prepared packages for the two women who stayed here with Grund. Moved out to the old tinker's place, Grund said. He thumbed upward toward the sagging ceiling. Thought this place was getting too dangerous. You sure you don't want to do the same? Nah, he said. 
I can finally move without kicking someone. She left him and shoved her hands in her pockets, wearing her new coat and hat against the cool air. She'd hoped that Kolinar would prove to be warmer after so long on the shattered plains or Eurythiru. But it was cold here, too, suffering a season of winter weather. Perhaps the arrival of the Everstorm was to be blamed. She checked in on Muri next, the former seamstress with three daughters. She was of second non, high-ranking for a dark eyes, and had run a successful business in a town near Revelar. Now she trolled the water ditches following storms for the corpses of rats and kremlings. Muri always had some gossip that was amusing but generally pointless. Vale left about an hour later and made her way out of the market, dropping her last package in the lap of a random beggar. The old beggar sniffed the package, then whooped with excitement. The swift spren, he said, nudging one of the other beggars. Look, the swift spren, he cackled, digging into the package, and his friend roused from his sleep and snatched some flatbread. Swift spren? Vale asked. That's you, he said. Yup, yup, I heard of you. Robbing rich folk all through the city, you do. And nobody can stop you, cause you're a spren. Can walk through walls, you can. White hat, white coat. Don't always appear the same, do ya? The beggar started stuffing his face. Vale smiled. Her reputation was spreading. She'd enhanced it by sending Ishna and Vatha out, wearing illusions to look like Vale, giving away food. Surely the cult couldn't ignore her much longer. Pattern hummed as she stretched. Exhaustion spren, all of the corrupted variety, spinning about her in the air, little red whirlwinds. The merchant she'd stolen from earlier had chased her away himself and had been nimble for his age. Why? Pattern asked. Why what? Vale asked. Why is the sky blue, the sun bright? Why do storms blow or rains fall? Mmm. Why are you so happy about feeding so few? Feeding these few is something we can do. So is jumping from a building, he said. Frank as if he didn't understand the sarcasm he used. But we do not do this. You lie, Shalon. Vale. Your lies wrap other lies. Mm. He sounded drowsy. Could Spren get drowsy? Remember your ideal, the truth you spoke. She shoved her hands in her pockets. Evening was coming the sun slipping toward the western horizon, as if it were running from the origin and the storms. It was the individual touch, the light in the eyes of people she gave to that really excited her. Feeding them felt so much more real than the rest of the plan to infiltrate the cult and investigate the oath gate. It's too small, she thought. That was what Yasna would say. I'm thinking too small. Along the street, she passed people who whimpered and suffered. Far too many hunger spren in the air, and fear spren at nearly every corner. She had to do something to help. 
like throwing a thimble full of water onto a bonfire. She stood at an intersection, head bowed, as the shadows grew long, reaching toward night. Chanting broke her out of her trance. How long had she been standing there? Flickering light, orange and primal, painted a street to her left. No sphere glowed that color. She walked toward it, pulling off her hat and sucking in stormlight. She released it in a puff, then stepped through, trailing tendrils that wrapped around her and transformed her shape. People had gathered, as they usually did, when the cult of moments paraded. Swift Spren broke through them, wearing the costume of a Spren from her notes. Notes she'd lost to the sea. A Spren shaped like a glowing arrowhead that wove through the sky around sky eels. Golden tassels streamed from her back, long, with arrowhead shapes at the ends. Her entire front was wrapped in cloth that trailed behind, her arms, legs, and face covered. Swift spren flowed among the cultists and drew stares even from them. I have to do more, she thought. I have to think grander schemes. Could Shalan's lies help her be something more than a broken girl from rural Yakaved? A girl who was deep down terrified that she had no idea what she was doing. The cultists chanted softly, repeating the words of the leaders at the front. Our time has passed. Our time has passed. The spren have come. The spren have come. Give them our sins. Give them our sins. Yes, she could feel it. The freedom these people felt. It was the peace of surrender. They coursed down the street, proffering their torches and lanterns toward the sky, wearing the garb of spren. Why worry? Embrace the release. Embrace the transition. Embrace the coming of storm and spren. Embrace the end. Swift spren breathed in their chants and saturated herself with their ideas. She became them, and she could hear it, whispering in the back of her mind. Surrender. Give me your passion, your pain, your love. Give up your guilt. Embrace the end. Shalan, I'm not your enemy. That last one stood out like a scar on a beautiful man's face. Jarring. She came to herself. Storms. She'd initially thought that this group might lead her up to the revel on the Oathgate platform, but she'd let herself be carried away by the darkness. Trembling, she stopped in place. The others stopped around her. The illusion, the spren-like tassels behind her, continued to stream even when she wasn't walking. There was no wind. The cultists' chanting broke off, and corrupted allspren exploded around several of their heads. Soot-black puffs. Some fell to their knees. To them, wrapped in streaming cloth, face obscured, ignoring wind and gravity, she would look like an actual spren. There are spren, Shalan said to the gathered crowd using light weaving to twist and warp her voice. And there are Spren. You followed the Dark Ones. They whisper for you to abandon yourselves. They lie, the cultists gasped. 
We do not want your devotion. When have Spren ever demanded your devotion? Stop dancing in the streets and be men and women again. Strip off those idiotic costumes and return to your families. They didn't move quickly enough, so she sent her tassels streaming upward, curling about one another, lengthening. A powerful light flashed from her. Go! she shouted. They fled, some throwing off their costumes as they went. Shalon waited, trembling, until she was alone. She let the glow vanish and shrouded herself in blackness, then stepped off the street. When she emerged from the blackness, she looked like Vale again. Storms. She'd, she'd become one of them so easily. Was her mind so quickly corrupted? She wrapped her arms around herself, trailing through streets and markets. Yasna would have been strong enough to keep going with them until reaching the platform. And if these hadn't been allowed up, most that wandered the streets weren't privileged enough to join the feast. Then she'd have done something else, perhaps take the place of one of the feast guards. Truth was, she enjoyed the thievery and feeding the people. Vale wanted to be a hero of the streets, like in the old stories. That had corrupted Shalon, preventing her from going forward with something more logical. But she'd never been the logical one. That was Yasna, and Shalon couldn't be her. Maybe, maybe she could become radiant and... She huddled against a wall, arms wrapped around herself. Sweating, trembling, she went looking for light. She found it down a street, a calm, level glow. The friendly light of spheres, and with it a sound that seemed impossible. Laughter? She chased it, hungry, until she reached a gathering of people singing beneath Noman's azure gaze. They'd overturned boxes, gathering in a ring, while one man led the boisterous songs. Shalon watched, hand on the wall of a building, Vale's hat held limply in her gloved safe hand. Shouldn't that laughter have been more desperate? How could they be so happy? How could they sing? In that moment, these people seemed like strange beasts, beyond her understanding. Sometimes she felt like a thing wearing a human skin. She was that thing in Eurythiru, the unmade, who sent out puppets to feign humanity. It's him, she noticed absently. Wits leading the songs. He hadn't left her any more messages at the inn. Last time she'd visited, the innkeeper complained that he'd moved out and had coerced her to pay Wits' tab. Vale pulled on her hat, then turned and trailed away down the small market street. She turned herself back into Shalon right before she reached the tailor's shop. Vale let go reluctantly, as she kept wanting to go track down Kaladin in the wall guard. He wouldn't know her, so she could approach him, pretend to get to know him, maybe flirt a little. Radiant was aghast at that idea. Her oaths to Adolin weren't complete, but they were important. She respected him and enjoyed their time training together with the sword. And Shalon? What did Shalon want again? Did it matter? Why bother worrying about her? Vale finally let go, 
She folded her hat and coat, then used an illusion to disguise them as a satchel. She layered an illusion of Shalon and her hava over the top of her trousers and shirt, then strolled inside, where she found Dre and Scar playing cards and debating which kind of chowta was best. There were different kinds. Shalon nodded to them, then, exhausted, started up the steps. A few hunger spren, however, reminded her that she hadn't saved anything for herself from the day's thievery. She put away her clothing, then hiked down to the kitchen. Here she found Elokar drinking from a single cup of wine, into which he dropped a sphere. That red-violet glow was the room's only light. On the table before him was a sheet of glyphs, names of the houses he had been approaching through the parties. He'd crossed out some of the names, but had circled the others, writing down numbers of troops they might be able to provide. Fifty armsmen here, thirty there. He raised the glowing cup to her as she gathered some flatbread and sugar. What is that design on your skirt? It seems familiar to me. She glanced down. Pattern, who usually clung to her coat, had been replicated in the illusion on the side of her hava. Familiar? Elokar nodded. He didn't seem drunk, just contemplative. I used to see myself as a hero, like you. I imagined claiming the shattered plains in my father's name. Vengeance for blood spilled. It doesn't even matter now, does it, that we won? Of course it matters, Shalon said. We have your Ethiru, and we defeated a large army of Voidbringers. He grunted. Sometimes I think that if I merely insist long enough, the world will transform. But wishing and expecting is of the passions. A heresy. A good Vorin worries about transforming themselves. Give me your passion. Have you any news about the Oath Gate or the Cult of Moments? Elokar asked. No. I have some thoughts about getting up there, though. New ones. Good. I might have troops for us soon, though their numbers will be smaller than I'd hoped. We depend upon your reconnaissance, however. I would know what is happening on that platform before I march troops onto it. Give me a few more days. I'll get onto the platform, I promise. He took a drink of his wine. There are few people remaining to whom I can still be a hero, Radiant. This city, my son, Storms. He was a baby when I last saw him. He'd be three now, locked in the palace. Shalon set down her food. Wait here. She fetched her sketch pad and pencils from a shelf in the showroom, then returned to Elokar and settled down. She placed some spheres out for light, then started drawing. Elokar sat at the table across from her, lit by the cup of wine. What are you doing? I don't have a proper sketch of you, Shalon said. I want one. Creation spren started to appear around her immediately. They seemed normal, though they were so odd anyway, it could be hard to tell. Elokar was a good man, in his heart, at least. Shouldn't that matter most? He moved to look over her shoulder, but she was no longer sketching from sight. We'll save them, 
Shalon whispered. You'll save them. It will be all right. Elokar watched silently as she filled in the shading and finished the picture. Once she lifted her pencil, Elokar reached past her and rested his fingers on the page. It depicted Elokar kneeling on the ground, beaten down, clothing ragged. But he looked upward, outward, chin raised. He wasn't beaten. No, this man was noble, regal. Is that what I look like? He whispered. Yes, it's what you could be, at least. May I, may I have it? She lacquered the page, then handed it to him. Thank you. Storms. He almost seemed to be in tears. Feeling embarrassed, she gathered her supplies and her food, then hurried out of the kitchen. Back in her rooms, she met Ishna, who was grinning. The short, dark-eyed woman had been out earlier, wearing Vale's face and clothing. She held up a slip of paper. Someone handed me this today, Brightness, while I was giving away food. Frowning, Shalon took the note. Meet us at the borders of the revel in two nights, the day of the next Everstorm, it read. Come alone. Bring food. Join the feast. 75. Only Red. Eleven years ago. Dalinar left the horse. Horses were too slow. A misty fog blew off the lake, reminding him of that day long ago when he, Gavilar, and Satius had first attacked the rift. The elites who accompanied him were the product of years of planning and training. Primarily archers, they wore no armor and were trained for long-distance running. Horses were magnificent beasts. The Sunmaker famously had used an entire company of cavalry. Over a short distance, their speed and maneuverability had been legendary. Those possibilities intrigued Dalinar. Could men be trained to fire bows from horseback? How devastating would that be? What about a charge of horses bearing men with spears, like the legends spoke of during the Shin invasion? For today, however, he didn't need horses. Men were better suited for long-distance running, not to mention being much better at scrambling over broken hillsides and uneven rocks. This company of elites could outrun any harrying force he'd yet to meet. Though archers, they were proficient with the sword. Their training was unparalleled, and their stamina legendary. Dalinar hadn't trained with them personally, as he didn't have time to practice running thirty miles a day. Fortunately, he had plate to make up the difference. Clad in his armor, he led the charging force over scrub and rock, past reeds that released hair-like inner strands to shiver on the breeze until he drew near. Grass, tree, and weed took fright at his approach. Two fires burned inside him. First, the energy of the plate, lending power to each step. The second fire was the thrill. Satius, a traitor? Impossible. He had supported Gavilar all along. Dalinar trusted him. And yet, I thought myself trustworthy, Dalinar thought, leading the charge down a hillside, a hundred men flooding behind him. Yet I almost turned on Gavilar. He would see for himself. He would find out whether this 
caravan that had brought supplies to the rift actually had a shard-bearer in its ranks or not, but the possibility that he had been betrayed, that Sadius could have been working against them all along, drove Dalinar to a kind of focused madness, a clarity only the thrill bestowed. It was the focus of a man, his sword, and the blood he would spill. The thrill seemed to transform within him as he ran, soaking into his tiring muscles, saturating him. It became a power unto itself. So when they crested a hillside some distance south of the rift, he felt somehow more energetic than when he'd left. As his company of elites jogged up, Dalinar pulled to a stop, armored feet grinding on stone. Ahead, down the hill and at the mouth of a canyon, a frantic group was scrambling to arms. The caravan. Its scouts must have spotted the approach of Dalinar's force. They'd been setting up camp, but left their tents running for the canyon where they'd be able to avoid being flanked. Dalinar roared, summoning his blade, ignoring the fatigue of his men as he dashed down the hillside. The soldiers wore forest green and white, Sadius's colors. Dalinar reached the bottom of the hill and stormed through the now-abandoned camp. He swept past the stragglers, slicing out with Oathbringer, dropping them, their eyes burning. Wait. His momentum wouldn't let him stop now. Where was the enemy shard-bearer? Something is wrong. Dalinar led his men into the canyon after the soldiers, following the enemy along a wide path up the side. He raised Oathbringer high as he ran. Why would they put on Sadius's colors if they're a secret envoy bringing contraband supplies? Dalinar stopped in place, his soldiers swarming around him. Their path had taken them about fifty feet up from the bottom of the canyon, on the south side of a steep incline. He saw no sign of a shard-bearer as the enemy gathered above. And those uniforms. He blinked. That, that was wrong. He shouted in order to pull back, but the sound of his voice was overwhelmed by a sudden roar, a sound like thunder, accompanied by a dreadful clatter of rock against rock. The ground quivered, and he turned in horror to find a landslide tumbling down the steep side of the ravine to his right, directly above where he had led his men. He had a fraction of a moment to take it in before the rocks pounded him in a terrible crash. Everything spun, then grew black. Still he was pounded, rolled, crushed. An explosion of molten sparks briefly flashed in his eyes, and something hard smacked him on the head. Finally it ended. He found himself lying in blackness, his head pounding, thick warm blood running down his face and dripping from his chin. He could feel the blood, but not see it. Had he been blinded? His cheek was pressed against a rock. No, he wasn't blind. He'd been buried and his helm had shattered. He shifted with a groan, and something illuminated the stones around his head, stormlight seeping from his breastplate. Somehow he'd survived the landslide. He lay face down, prone, buried. He shifted again, and from the corner of his eye saw a rock sink, threatening to crush sideways into his skull. He lay still, his head thundering with pain. He flexed his left hand and found that gauntlet broken, his forearm plate too, but his right-hand armor still worked. This, this was a trap. Sadius was not a traitor, 
This had been designed by the Rift and its High Lord to lure Dalinar in, then drop stones to crush him. Cowards. They'd tried something like that in Rathalas long ago, too. He relaxed, groaning softly. No, can't lie here. Maybe he could pretend to be dead. That sounded so appealing he closed his eyes and started to drift. A fire ignited inside him. You have been betrayed, Dalinar. Listen. He heard voices, men picking through the wreckage of the rock slide. He could make out their nasal accent. Rifters. Tanalon sent you here to die. Dalinar sneered, opening his eyes. Those men wouldn't let him hide in this tomb of stone, feigning death. He carried shards. They would find him to recover their prize. He braced himself, using his plated shoulder to keep the rock from rolling against his exposed head, but did not otherwise move. Eventually, the men above started speaking eagerly. From their words, they'd found his armor's cape sticking out through the stone, the glyphs of the koch and linnel stark on the blue background. Stones scraped and the burden upon him lightened. The thrill built to a crescendo. The stone near his head rolled back. Go! Dalinar heaved with his plated feet and shifted a boulder with his still-armored hand, opening enough space that he could stand up straight. He ripped free of the tomb and stumbled upright into open air, stones clattering. The rifters cursed and scrambled backward as he leaped out of the hole, boots grinding against stones. Dalinar growled, summoning his blade. His armor was in worse shape than he'd assumed. Sluggish, broken in four separate places. All around him, Tanalon's men's eyes seemed to glow. They gathered and grinned at him. He could see the thrill thick in their expressions. His blade and leaking plate reflected in their dark eyes. Blood streaming down the side of his face, Dalinar grinned back at them. They rushed to attack. Dalinar saw only red. He partially came to himself as he found himself pounding a man's head repeatedly against the stones. Behind him lay a pile of corpses with burned eyes piled high around the hole where Dalinar had stood, fighting against them. He dropped the head of the corpse in his hands and breathed out, feeling... What did he feel? Numb, suddenly. Pain was a distant thing. Even anger was nebulous. He looked down at his hands. Why was he using those, and not his shard blade? He turned to the side, where Oathbringer protruded from a rock where he'd stabbed it. The gemstone on the pommel was cracked. That was right. He couldn't dismiss it. Something about the crack had interfered. He stumbled to his feet, looking around for more foes, but none came to challenge him. His armor? Someone had broken the breastplate while fighting him, and he felt at a stab wound on his chest. He barely remembered that. The sun was low on the horizon, plunging the canyon into shadows. Around him, discarded bits of clothing flapped in the breeze, and bodies lay still. Not a sound. Not even Kremling scavengers. Drained, he bound the worst of his wounds, then grabbed Oathbringer and set it on his shoulder. Never had a shard blade felt so heavy. He started walking. Along the way, he discarded pieces of shard plate, which grew too heavy. He'd lost blood, far too much. He focused on the steps, one after another. Momentum. 
A fight was all about momentum. He didn't dare take the obvious route in case he encountered more rifters. He crossed through the wilderness, vines writhing beneath his feet and rock buds sprouting after he passed. The thrill returned to urge him on, for this walk was a fight, a battle. Night fell, and he threw off his last piece of shard plate, leaving only the neck brace. They could regrow the rest of it from that if they had to. Keep moving. In that darkness, shadowed figures seemed to accompany him. Armies made of red mist at the corners of his vision, charging forces that fell to dust and then sprouted from shadow again, like surging ocean waves in a constant state of disintegration and rebirth. Not just men, but eyeless horses, animals locked in struggle, stifling the life from one another, shadows of death and conflict to propel him through the night. He hiked for an eternity. Eternity was nothing when time had no meaning. He was actually surprised when he approached the light of the rift from torches held by soldiers on the walls. His navigation by the moons and stars had been successful. He stalked through the darkness toward his own camp on the field. There was another army here, Sadius's actual soldiers. They'd arrived ahead of schedule. Another few hours, and Tanelon's ploy wouldn't have worked. Dalinar dragged Oathbringer behind him. It made a soft scraping sound as it cut a line in the stone. He numbly heard soldiers talking by the bonfire ahead, and one called something out. Dalinar ignored them, each step relentless as he passed into their light. A pair of young soldiers in blue crowed their challenges until cutting off and lowering spears gaping. Stormfather, one of them said, stumbling back. Kalek and the Almighty himself. Dalinar continued through camp. Noise stirred at his passing, men crying of visions of the dead and of voidbringers. He made for his command tent. The eternity it took to get there seemed the same length as the others. How could he cross so many miles in the same time as it took to go the few feet to a simple tent? Dalinar shook his head seeing red at the sides of his vision. Words broke through the canvas of the tent. Impossible. The men are spooked. They... No, it's simply not possible. The flaps burst apart, revealing a man with fine clothing and wavy hair. Satius gaped, then stumbled to the side, holding the flap for Dalinar, who did not break stride. He walked straight in, Oathbringer slicing a ribbon in the ground. Inside, generals and officers gathered by the grim light of a few sphere lanterns. Evie, comforted by brightness Calamy, was weeping, though Eole studied the table full of maps. All eyes turned toward Dalinar. How? Teleb asked. Blackthorn? We sent a team of scouts to inform you as soon as Tanelon turned on us and cast our soldiers off his walls. Our force reported all men lost. An ambush. Dalinar hefted Oathbringer and slammed it down into the stone ground beside him, then sighed at finally being able to release the burden. He placed his palms on the sides of the battle table, hands crusted in blood. His arms were covered in it, too. You sent the same scouts, he whispered, who first spied on the caravan and reported seeing a shard-bearer leading it? Yes, Teleb said. Traitors, Dalinar said. They're working with Tanelon. 
He couldn't have known that Dalinar would parley with him. Instead, the man had somehow bribed away members of the army, and had intended to use their reports to coax Dalinar into a hurried ride to the south. Into a trap. It had all been set in motion before Dalinar had spoken to Tanelon, planned well in advance. Tella barked out orders for the scouts to be imprisoned. Dalinar leaned down over the battle maps on the table. This is a map for a siege, he whispered. We, Teleb looked to Sadius. We figured that the king would want time to come down himself. To, um, avenge you, bright lord. Too slow, Dalinar said, his voice ragged. High Prince Sadius proposed another option, Teleb said. But the king, Dalinar looked to Sadius. They used my name to betray you, Sadius said, then spat to the side. We will suffer rebellions like this time and time again, unless they fear us, Dalinar. Dalinar nodded slowly. They must bleed, he whispered. I want them to suffer for this. Men, women, children. They must know the punishment for broken oaths. Immediately. Dalinar? Ebby stood up. Husband? She stepped forward toward the table. Then he turned toward her, and she stopped. Her unusual pale westerner skin grew even more starkly white. She stepped backward, pulling her hands toward her chest and gaped at him, horrified. Fearspren growing up from the ground around her. Dalinar glanced toward a sphere lantern which had a polished metal surface. The man who looked back seemed more void-bringer than man. Face crusted over with blackened blood, hair matted with it, blue eyes wide, jaw clenched. He was sliced with what seemed to be a hundred wounds, his padded uniform in tatters. You shouldn't do this, Evie said. Rest. Sleep, Dalinar. Think about this. Give it a few days. So tired. The entire kingdom thinks us weak, Dalinar, Sadius whispered. We took too long to put this rebellion down. You have never listened to me before, but listen now. You want to prevent this sort of thing from happening again? You must punish them. Everyone. Punish them, Dalinar said, the thrill rising again. Pain, anger, humiliation. He pressed his hands against the map table to steady himself. The soul caster that my brother sent. She can make two things. Grain and oil, Taleb said. Good. Set her to work. More food supplies? No. Oil. As much as we have gemstones for. Oh, and someone take my wife to her tent so she may recover from her unwarranted grief. Everyone else, gather round. In the morning we make Rathalus an example. I promised Tanelon that his widows would weep for what I did here, but that is too merciful for what they've done to me. I intend to so thoroughly ruin this place for ten generations nobody will dare build here for fear of the spirits who will haunt it. We will make a pyre of this city, and there shall be no weeping for its passing, for none will remain to weep.
1976. An animal. Eleven years ago. Dalinar agreed to change clothing. He washed his face and arms and let a surgeon look at his wounds. The red mist was still there, coloring his vision. He would not sleep. It wouldn't let him. About an hour after he'd arrived in camp, he trudged back to the command tent, cleaned but not particularly refreshed. The generals had drawn up a new set of battle plans to take the city walls, as instructed by Satius. Dalinar inspected and made a few changes, but told them to suspend making plans to march down into the city and clear it. He had something else in mind. Bright Lord, a messenger woman said, arriving at the tent. She stepped in. An envoy is leaving the city, flying the flag of truce. Shoot them dead, Dalinar said calmly. Sir? Arrows, woman, Dalinar said. Kill anyone who comes out of the city and leave their bodies to rot. Um, yes, bright lord. The messenger ducked away. Dalinar looked up toward Sadius, who still wore his shard plate, glittering in the sphere light. Sadius nodded in approval, then gestured to the side. He wanted to speak in private. Dalinar left the table. He should hurt more, shouldn't he? Storms. He was so numb he could barely feel anything, aside from that burning within, simmering deep down. He stuffed with Sadius out of the tent. I've been able to stall the scribes, Sadius whispered, as you ordered. Gavilar doesn't know that you live. His orders from before were to wait and lay siege. My return supersedes his distant orders, Dalinar said. The men will know that. Even Gavilar wouldn't disagree. Yes, but why keep him ignorant of your arrival? The last moon was close to setting. Not long until morning. What do you think of my brother, Sadius? He's exactly what we need, Sadius said. Hard enough to lead a war, soft enough to be beloved during peace. He has foresight and wisdom. Do you think he could do what needs to be done here? Sadius fell silent. No, he finally said. No, not now. I wonder if you can, either. This will be more than just death. It will be complete destruction. A lesson, Dalinar whispered. A display. Tanelon's plan was clever, but risky. He knew his chances of winning here depended upon removing you and your shards from the battle. He narrowed his eyes. You thought those soldiers were mine. You actually believed I'd betray Gavilar. I worried. Then know this, Dalinar, Sadius said, low, his voice like stone grinding stone. I would cut out my own heart before betraying Gavilar. I have no interest in being king. It's a job with little praise and even less amusement. I mean for this kingdom to stand for centuries. Good, Dalinar said. Honestly, I worried that you would betray him. I almost did, once. I stopped myself. Why? Because, Dalinar said, there has to be someone in this kingdom capable of doing what needs to be done, and it can't be the man sitting on the throne. Continue to hold the scribes back. It will be better if my brother can reasonably disavow what we're about to do. 
Something will leak out soon, Sadius said. Between our two armies, there are too many span reeds. Storming things are getting so cheap, most of the officers can afford to buy a pair to manage their households from a distance. Dalinar strode back into the tent, Sadius following. Oathbringer still sat where he'd stuck it into the stones, though an armorer had replaced the gemstone for him. He pulled the blade from the rock. Time to attack. Amaram turned from where he stood with the other generals. Now, Delanor? At night? The bonfires on the wall should be enough. To take the wall fortifications, yes, Amaram said. But, Bright Lord, I don't relish fighting down into those vertical streets in the night. Dalinar shared a look with Sadius. Fortunately, you won't have to. Send the word for the men to prepare the oil and flaming brands. We march. High Marshal Parathom took the orders and began organizing specifics. Dalinar lifted Oathbringer on his shoulder. Time to bring you home. In under a half hour, men charged the walls. No shardbearers led this time. Dalinar was too weak and his plate was in shambles. Sadius never liked exposing himself too early, and Teleb couldn't rush in alone. They did it the mundane way, sending men to be crushed by stones or impaled by arrows as they carried ladders. They broke through eventually, securing a section of the wall in a furious, bloody fight. The thrill was an unsatisfied lump inside Dalinar, but he was wrung out, worn down. So he continued to wait until finally Teleb and Sadius joined the fight and routed the last of the defenders, sending them down from the walls toward the chasm of the city itself. I need a squad of elites, Dalinar said softly to a nearby messenger, and my own barrel of oil. Have them meet me inside the walls. Yes, Bright Lord, the young boy said, then ran off. Dalinar strode across the field, passing fallen men, bloody and dead. They died almost in ranks where waves of arrows had struck. He also passed a cluster of corpses in white, where the envoy had been slaughtered earlier. Warmed by the rising sun, he passed through the now open gates of the wall and entered the ring of stone that surrounded the rift. Sadius met him there, face plate up, cheeks even redder than normal from exertion. They fought like void-bringers, more vicious than last time, I'd say. They know what is coming, Dalinar said, walking toward the cliff edge. He stopped halfway there. We checked it for a trap this time, Sadius noted. Dalinar continued forward. The rifters had gotten the better of him twice now. He should have learned the first time. He stopped at the edge of the cliff, looking down at a city built on platforms rising up along the widening sides of the rift of stone. It was little wonder they thought so highly of themselves as to resist. Their city was grand, a monument of human ingenuity and grit. Burn it, Dalinar said. Archers gathered with arrows ready to ignite, while other men rolled up barrels of oil and pitch to give extra fuel. There are thousands of people in there, sir, Teleb said softly from his side. Tens of thousands. This kingdom must know the price of rebellion. We make a statement today. Obey or die? Teleb asked. The same deal I offered you, Teleb. You were smart enough to take it. And the common people in there? The ones who didn't get a chance to choose a side? 
Sadius snorted from nearby. We will prevent more deaths in the future by letting every bright lord in this kingdom know the punishment for disobedience. He took a report from an aide, then stepped up to Dalinar. You were right about the scouts who turned traitor. We bribed one to turn on the others and will execute the rest. The plan was apparently to separate you from the army, then hopefully kill you. Even if you were simply delayed, the Rift was hoping their lies would prompt your army into a reckless attack without you. They weren't counting on your swift arrival, Delinar said. Or your tenacity. The soldiers unplugged barrels of oil, then began dropping them down, soaking the upper levels of the city. Flaming brands followed, starting struts and walkways on fire. The very foundations of this city were flammable. Tanelon's soldiers tried to organize a fight back out of the rift, but they'd surrendered the high ground, expecting Dalinar to do as he had before, conquering and controlling. He watched as the fires spread, flamespren rising in them, seeming larger and more angry than normal. He then walked back, leaving a solemn teleb, to gather his remaining elites. Captain Lord Kadash had fifty for him, along with two barrels of oil. Follow, Dalinar said, walking around the rift on its east side, where the fracture was narrow enough to cross on a short bridge. Screams below, then cries of pain, calls for mercy. People flooded from buildings, shouting in terror, fleeing on walkways and steps toward the basin below. Many buildings burned, trapping others inside. Dalinar led his squad along the northern rim of the rift until they reached a certain location. His armies waited here to kill any soldiers who tried to break out, but the enemy had concentrated their assault on the other side, then been mostly beaten back. The fires hadn't reached up here yet, though Sadius's archers had killed several dozen civilians who had tried to flee in this direction. For now, the wooden ramp down into the city was clear. Dalinar led his group down one level to a location he remembered so well. The hidden door set into the wall. It was metal now, guarded by a pair of nervous rifter soldiers. Kadash's men shot them down with shortbows. That annoyed Dalinar. All of this fighting and nothing with which to feed the thrill. He stepped over one of the corpses, then tried the door, which was no longer hidden. It was still locked tight. Tanelon had decided to go with security instead of secrets this time. Unfortunately for them, Oathbringer had come home. Dalinar easily cut off the steel hinges. He stepped back as the door slammed forward onto the walkway, shaking the wood. Light those, he said, pointing to the barrels. Roll them down and burn out anyone hiding inside. The men hurried to obey, and soon the tunnel of rock had fitful black smoke pouring from it. Nobody tried to flee, though he thought he heard cries of pain inside. Dalinar watched as long as he could, until soon the smoke and heat drove him back. The rift behind him was becoming a pit of darkness and fire. Dalinar retreated up the ramp to the stones above. Archers lit the final walkways and ramps behind him. It would be long before people decided to resettle here. High storms were one thing, but there was a more terrible force upon the land— and it carried a shard blade. Those screams. Dalinar passed lines of soldiers who waited along the northern rim in silent horror. Many wouldn't have been with Dalinar and Gavilar during the early years of their conquest, when they'd allowed pillaging and ransacking of cities. 
and for those who did remember, well, he'd often found an excuse to stop things like this before. He drew his lips to a line and shoved down the thrill. He would not let himself enjoy this. That single sliver of decency he could keep back. Bright Lord, a soldier said, waving to him. Bright Lord, you must see this. Just below the cliff here, one tier down into the city, was a beautiful white building, a palace. Farther out along the walkways, a group of people fought to reach the building. The wooden walkways were on fire and preventing their access. Shocked, Dalinar recognized Tanalon the Younger from their encounter earlier. Trying to get into his home, Dalinar thought. Figures darkened the building's upper windows, a woman and children. No, trying to get to his family. Tanalon hadn't been hiding in the safe room after all. Throw rope, Dalinar said. Bring Tanalon up here, but shoot down the bodyguards. The smoke billowing out of the rift was growing thick, lit red by the fires. Dalinar coughed, then stepped back as his men let down a rope to the platform below, a section that wasn't burning. Tanalon hesitated, then took it, letting Dalinar's men haul him up. The bodyguards were sent arrows when they tried to climb up a nearby burning ramp. Please, Tanalon said, clothing ashen from the smoke as he was hauled up over the stone rim. My family, please. Dalinar could hear them screaming below. He whispered an order and his elites pushed back the regular Kolin troops from the area, opening up a wide half-circle against the burning rift, where only Dalinar and his closest men were able to observe the captive. Tenelon slumped on the ground. Please. I, Dalinar said softly, am an animal. What? An animal, Dalinar said, reacts as it is prodded. You whip it, and it becomes savage. With an animal, you can start a tempest. Trouble is, once it's gone feral, you can't just whistle it back to you. Blackthorn, Tanelon screamed. Please, my children. I made a mistake years ago, Dalinar said. I will not be so foolish again. And yet, those screams... Dalinar's soldiers seized Tanelon tightly as Dalinar turned from the man and walked back to the pit of fire. Sadius had just arrived with a company of his own men, but Dalinar ignored them, Oathbringer still held against his shoulder. Smoke stung Dalinar's nose, his eyes watering. He couldn't see across the rift to the rest of his armies, the air warped with heat, colored red. It was like looking into damnation itself. Dalinar released a long breath, suddenly feeling his exhaustion even more deeply. It is enough, he said, turning to Sadius. Let the rest of the people of the city escape out of the mouth of the canyon below. We have sent our signal. What? Sadius said, hiking over. Dalinar! A loud series of cracks interrupted him. An entire section of the city nearby collapsed into the flames. The palace and its occupants crashed down with it, a tempest of sparks and splintering wood. No! Tanelon shouted. No! Dalinar, Sadius said. I prepared a battalion below with archers per your orders. My orders? 
You said to kill anyone who comes out of the city and leave their bodies to rot. I had men stationed below. They've launched arrows in at the city struts, burned the walkways leading down. This city burns from both directions, from underneath and from above. We can't stop it now. Wood cracked as more sections of the city collapsed. The thrill surged, and Delinar pushed it away. We've gone too far. Nonsense. Our lesson won't mean much if people can merely walk away. Sadius glanced toward Tanalon. Last loose end is this one. We don't want him getting away again. He reached for his sword. I'll do it, Delinar said. Though the concept of more death was starting to sicken him, he steeled himself. This was the man who had betrayed him. Dalinar stepped closer. To his credit, Tanelon tried to leap to his feet and fight. Several elites shoved the traitor back down to the ground, though Captain Lord Kadash himself was just standing at the side of the city, looking down at the destruction. Dalinar could feel that heat, so terrible. It mirrored a sense within him. The thrill, incredibly, was not satisfied. Still, it thirsted. It didn't seem... didn't seem it could be satiated. Tanelon collapsed, blubbering. You should not have betrayed me, Dalinar whispered, raising Oathbringer. At least this time you didn't hide in your hole. I don't know who you let take cover there, but know they are dead. I took care of that with barrels of fire. Tanelon blinked then started laughing with a frantic, crazed air. You don't know? How could you not know? But you killed our messengers. You poor fool. You poor, stupid fool. Delinar seized him by the chin, though the man was still held by his soldiers. What? She came to us, Tanelon said, to plead. How could you have missed her? Do you track your own family so poorly? The hole you burned. We don't hide there anymore. Everyone knows about it. Now it's a prison. Ice washed through Dalinar and he grabbed Tanelon by the throat and held, Oathbringer slipping from his fingers. He strangled the man, all the while demanding that he retract what he'd said. Tanelon died with a smile on his lips. Dalinar stepped back, suddenly feeling too weak to stand. Where was the thrill to bolster him? Go back, he shouted at his elites. Search that hole! Go! He trailed off. Kadash was on his knees, looking woozy, a pile of vomit on the rock before him. Some elites ran to try to do as Dalinar said, but they shied away from the rift. The heat rising from the burning city was incredible. Dalinar roared, standing, pushing toward the flames. However, the fire was too intense. Where he had once seen himself as an unstoppable force, he now had to admit exactly how small he was. Insignificant. Meaningless. Once it's gone feral, you can't just whistle it back to you. He fell to his knees and remained there until his soldiers pulled him, limp, away from the heat, and carried him to his camp. Six hours later, Dalinar stood with hands clasped behind his back, partially to hide how badly they were shaking, 
and stared at a body on the table covered in a white sheet. Behind him in the tent, some of his scribes whispered, a sound like swishing swords on the practice field. Taleb's wife, Calamy, led the discussion. She thought that Evie must have defected. What else could explain why the burned corpse of a high prince's wife had been found in an enemy safe house? It fit the narrative. Showing uncharacteristic determination, Evie had drugged the guard protecting her. She'd snuck away in the night. The scribes wondered how long Evie had been a traitor, and if she'd helped recruit the group of scouts who had betrayed Dalinar. He stepped forward, resting his fingers on the smooth, too-white sheet. Fool woman. The scribes didn't know Evie well enough. She hadn't been a traitor. She'd gone to the rift to plead for them to surrender. She'd seen in Dalinar's eyes that he wouldn't spare them. So, almighty helper, she'd gone to do what she could. Dalinar barely had the strength to stand. The thrill had abandoned him, and that left him broken, pained. He pulled back the corner of the sheet. The left side of Evie's face was scorched, nauseating, but the right side had been down toward the stone. It was oddly untouched. This is your fault, he thought at her. How dare you do this, stupid, frustrating woman? This was not his fault, not his responsibility. Dalinar, Calamy said, stepping up, you should rest. She didn't betray us, Dalinar said firmly. I'm sure eventually we'll know what she did not betray us, Dalinar snapped. Keep the discovery of her body quiet, Calamy. Tell the people. Tell them my wife was slain by an assassin last night. I will swear the few elites who know to secrecy. Let everyone think she died a hero, and that the destruction of the city today was done in retribution. Dalinar set his jaw. Earlier today, the soldiers of his army, so carefully trained over the years to resist pillaging and the slaughter of civilians, had burned a city to the ground. It would ease their consciences to think that first the High Lady had been murdered. Calamy smiled at him, a knowing, even self-important smile. His lie would serve a second purpose. As long as Calamy and the head scribes thought they knew a secret— they'd be less likely to dig for the true answer. Not my fault. Rest, Dalinar, Calamy said. You are in pain now, but as the high storm must pass, all mortal agonies will fade. Dalinar left the corpse to the ministrations of others. As he departed, he strangely heard the screams of those people in the rift. He stopped wondering what it was. Nobody else seemed to notice. Yes, that was distant screaming. In his head, maybe? They all seemed children to his ears, the ones he'd abandoned to the flames. A chorus of the innocent pleading for help, for mercy. Evie's voice joined them. Page from Mythica, The Taker of Secrets Ja Anat, creator and corrupter, unique among the unmade. Creator, her twisted creations are her beloved children. 
Her admiration of the spren of our world inspires her. Corrupter. She seeks the children of honor and the children of cultivation. With one touch, she corrupts. 77. Storm Shelter. Something must be done about the remnants of Odium's forces. The Parsh, as they are now called, continue their war with zeal, even without their masters from damnation. From Drawer 3020, First Emerald. Kaladin dashed across the street. Wait! he shouted. One more here! Ahead, a man with a thin mustache struggled to close a thick wooden door. It stuck partway open, however, giving just enough time for Kaladin to slip through. The man swore at him, then pulled the door shut. Made of dark stumpweight wood, it made a muffled thunk. The man did up the locks, then stepped back and let three younger men place a thick bar into the settings. Cutting that close, armsman, the mustachioed man said, noting the wall guard patch on Kaladin's shoulder. Sorry, Kaladin said, handing the man a few spheres as a cover charge. But the storm is still a few minutes away. Can't be too careful with this new storm, the man said. Be glad the door got stuck. Sill sat on the hinges, legs hanging over the sides. Kaladin doubted it had been luck. Sticking people's shoes to the stone was a classic windsprint trick. Still, he did understand the doorman's hesitance. Everstorms didn't quite match up with scholarly projections. The previous one had arrived hours earlier than anyone had guessed it would. Fortunately, they tended to blow in slower than high storms. If you knew to watch the sky, there was time to find shelter. Kaladin ran his hand through his hair and started deeper into the winehouse. This was one of those fashionable places that, while technically a storm shelter, was used only by rich people who had come to spend the storm enjoying themselves. It had a large common room and thick walls of stone blocks. No windows, of course. A bartender kept people liquored near the back, and a number of booths ringed the perimeter. He spotted Shalon and Adolin sitting in a booth at the side. She wore her own face, but Adolin looked like Melloran Kahl, a tall, bald man around Adolin's height. Kaladin lingered, watching Shalon laugh at something Adolin said, then poke him with her safe hand in the shoulder. She seemed completely enthralled by him. And good for her. Everyone deserved something to give them light these days. But what about the glances she shot him on occasion? Times when she didn't quite seem to be the same person. A different smile, an almost wicked look to her eyes. You're seeing things, he thought to himself. He strode forward and caught their attention, settling into the booth with a sigh. He was off duty and free to visit the city. He'd told the others he'd find his own shelter for the storm, and only had to be back in time for evening post-storm patrol. Took you long enough, bridge boy, Adolin said. Lost track of time, Kaladin said, tapping the table. He hated being in storm shelters. They felt too much like prisons. Outside, thunder announced the Everstorm's arrival. Most people in the city would be inside their homes— the refugees instead in public storm shelters. This for-pay shelter was sparsely occupied, only a few of the tables or booths in use. 
That would give privacy to talk, fortunately, but it didn't bode well for the proprietor. People didn't have spheres to waste. Where's Elokar? Kaladin asked. Elokar is working on last-minute plans through the storm, Adolin said. He's decided to reveal himself tonight to the light-eyes he's chosen. And he's done a good job, Cal. We'll at least have some troops because of this. Fewer than I'd like, but something. And maybe another night radiant? Shalon asked, glancing at Kaladin. What have you found? He quickly caught them up on what he'd learned. The wall guard might have a soul caster and was definitely producing food somehow. It had seized emerald stores in the city, a fact he'd recently discovered. Azure is tough to read, Kaladin finished. She visits the barracks every night but never talks about herself. Men report seeing her sword cut through stone, but it has no gemstone. I think it might be an honor blade, like the weapon of the assassin in white. Huh, Adolin said, sitting back. You know, that would explain a lot. My platoon has dinner with her tonight, after evening patrol, Kaladin said. I intend to see what I can learn. A serving girl came for orders, and Adolin bought them wine. He knew about light-eyed drinks and, without needing to be told, ordered something without a touch of alcohol for Kaladin. He'd be on duty later. Adolin did get Shalon a cup of violet, to Kaladin's surprise. As the serving girl left with the order, Adolin reached out toward Kaladin. Let me see your sword. My sword, Kaladin said, glancing toward Syl, who was huddling near the back of the booth and humming softly to herself, a way of ignoring the sounds of the Everstorm, which rumbled beyond the stones. Not that sword, Adolin said. Your side sword. Kaladin glanced down to where the sword stuck out beside his seat. He'd almost forgotten he was wearing the thing, which was a relief. The first few days, he'd bumped the sheath into everything. He unbuckled it and set it on the table for Adolin. Good blade, the prince said. Well maintained. It was in this condition when they assigned it to you? Kaladin nodded. Adolin drew it and held it up. It's a little small, Shalon noted. It's a one-handed sword, Shalon, close-range infantry weapon. A longer blade would be impractical. Longer like shard blades? Kaladin asked. Well, yes, they break all kinds of rules. Adolin waved the sword through a few motions, then sheathed it. I like this high marshal of yours. It's not even her weapon, Kaladin said, taking it back. You boys done comparing your swords? Shalon asked. Because I've found something. She thumped a large book onto the table. One of my contacts finally tracked down a copy of Hesse's Mythica. It's a newer book and has been poorly received. It attributes distinct personalities to the unmade. Adolin lifted the cover, peeking in. So, uh, anything about swords in it? Oh, hush, she said then batted his arm in a playful and somewhat nauseating way. Yes, it was uncomfortable to watch the two of them. Kaladin liked them both, just not together. He forced himself to look around the room, which was occupied by light eyes trying to drink away the sounds of the storm. He tried not to think of refugees who would be packed into stuffy public shelters, 
clutching their meager possessions and hoping some of what they were forced to leave behind would survive the storm. The book, Shalon said, claims there were nine unmade. That matches the vision Dalinar saw, though other reports speak of ten unmade. They're likely ancient spren, primal, from the days before human society and civilization. The book claims the nine rampaged during the desolations, but says not all were destroyed at Aharietiam. The author insists that some are active today. I find her vindicated, obviously, by what we've experienced. And there's one of these in the city, Adolin said. I think, Shalon said, I think there might be two, Adolin. Sia'anat, the taker of secrets, is one. Again, Dalinar's visions mention her. Sia'anat's touch corrupted other spren, and we're seeing the effects of that here. And the other one? Adolin asked. A shirt, Marn, Shalon said softly. She slipped a little knife from her satchel and began to absently carve at the top of the table. The heart of the revel. The book has less to say on him, though it speaks of how he leads people to indulge in excess. Too unmade, Kaladin said. Are you sure? Sure as I can be. Wit confirmed the second, and the way the queen acted leading up to the riots seems an obvious sign. As for the taker of secrets, we can see the corrupted spren ourselves. How do we fight two? Kaladin asked. How do we fight one? Adolin said. In the tower we didn't so much fight the thing as frighten it off. Shallan can't even say how she did that. What does the book say about fighting them? Nothing. Shallan shrugged, blowing at her little carving on the table. It was of a corrupted glory spren in the shape of a cube, which another patron had attracted. The book says if you see a spren the wrong color, you're supposed to immediately move to another town. There's kind of an army in the way, Kaladin said. Yes. Amazingly, your stench hasn't cleared them out yet. Shallan started leaping through her book. Kaladin frowned. Comments like that were part of what confused him about Shallan. She seemed perfectly friendly one moment, and then she'd snap at him the next, while pretending it was merely part of normal conversation. But she didn't talk like that to others, not even in jest. What is wrong with you, woman? he thought. They'd shared something intimate in the chasms back on the shattered plains. A high storm huddled together and words. Was she embarrassed by that? Was that the reason she snapped at him sometimes? If that was so, how did one explain the other times, when she watched him and grinned, when she winked in a sly way? Hesse reports stories of the unmade not only corrupting Spren, but corrupting people, Shalon was saying. Maybe that's what's happening with the palace. We'll know more after infiltrating the cult tonight. I don't like you going alone, Adolin said. I won't be alone. I'll have my team. One washwoman and two deserters, Kaladin said. If Gaz is anything to judge by, Shalon, you shouldn't put too much trust in those men. Shalon raised her chin. At least my soldiers knew when to get away from the war camps, as opposed to just standing around letting people fling arrows at them. We trust you, Shalon, Adolin said, eyeing Kaladin as if to say, drop it. 
and we really need to look at that oath gate. What if I can't open it? Shalon asked. What then? We have to retreat back to the Shattered Plains, Kaladin said. Elakar won't leave his family. Then Drey, Scar, and I rush the palace, Kaladin said. We fly in at night, enter through the upper balcony, grab the queen and the young prince. We do it all right before the high storm comes, then a lot of us fly back to Urethiru. And leave the city to fall, Adolin said, drawing his lips to a line. Can the city hold? Shallan asked. Maybe until we get back with a real army marched out here? That would take months, Adolin said. And the wall guard is, what, four battalions? Five in total, Kaladin said. Five thousand men? Shallan asked. So few? That's large for a city garrison, Adolin said. The point of fortifications is to let a small number hold against a much larger force. But the enemy has an unexpected advantage. Voidbringers who can fly, and a city infested with their allies. Yeah, Kaladin said. The wall guard is earnest, but they won't be able to withstand a dedicated assault. There are tens of thousands of parchment out there, and they're close to attacking. We don't have much time left. The fused will sweep in to secure portions of the wall, and their armies will follow. If we're going to hold this city, we'll need radiance and shardbearers to even the odds. Kaladin and Shallan shared a look. Their radiance were not a battle-ready group. Not yet. Storms, his men had barely taken to the skies. How could they be expected to fight those creatures who flew so easily upon the winds? How could he protect this city and protect his men? They fell silent, listening to the room shake with the sounds of thunder outside. Kaladin finished his drink, wishing it were one of Rock's concoctions instead, and flicked away an odd Kremling that he spotted clinging to the side of the bench. It had a multitude of legs and a bulbous body with a strange tan pattern on its back. Disgusting. Even with the stresses to the city, the proprietor could at least keep this place clean. Once the storm finally blew itself out, Shallan stepped from the winehouse, holding Adolin's arm. She watched Kaladin hurry off toward the barracks for evening patrol. She should probably be equally eager to get going. She still had to steal some food today, enough to satisfy the cult of moments when she approached them later in the evening. That should be easy enough. Vatha had taken to planning operations under Ishna's guidance and was proving quite proficient. Still, she lingered, enjoying Adolin's presence. She wanted to be here with him before it was time to be Vale. She, well, she didn't much care for him. Too clean cut, too oblivious, too expected. She was fine with him as an ally, but wasn't the least bit interested romantically. Shallan held his arm, walking with him. People already moved through the city, cleaning up, more so they could scavenge than out of civic duty. They reminded her of Kremlings that emerged after a storm to feast on the plants. Indeed, nearby, ornamental rock buds spat out vines and clusters beside doorways, a splatter of green vines and unfurling leaves set against the brown city canvas. One patch nearby had been struck and burned away by the Everstorm's red lightning. 
I need to show you the impossible falls sometime, Adolin said. If you watch them from the right angles, it looks like the water is flowing down along the tiers, then somehow right up onto the top again. As they walked, she had to step over a dead mink, sticking half out of a broken tree trunk. Not the most romantic of strolls, but it was good to hold on to Adolin's arm, even if he had to wear a false face. Hey, Adolin said, I didn't get to look through the sketchbook. You said you were going to show me. I brought the wrong one, remember? I had to carve on the table. She grinned. Don't think I missed you going up and paying for the damage when I wasn't looking. He grunted. People carve on bar tables? It happens all the time. Sure. Sure. It was a good carving, too. And you still think I shouldn't have done it? She squeezed his arm. Oh, Adolin Colin, you are your father's son. I won't do it again, all right? He was blushing. I, he said, was promised sketches. I don't care if it's the wrong sketchbook. I feel like I haven't seen any of your pictures for ages. There's nothing good in this one, she said, digging in her satchel. I've been distracted lately. He still made her hand it over, and secretly she was pleased. He started flipping through the more recent pictures, and though he noted the ones of strange spren, he idled most on the sketches of refugees she'd done for her collection. A mother with her daughter, sitting in shadow, but with her face looking toward the horizon and the hints of a rising sun. A thick-knuckled man sweeping the area around his pallet on the street. A young woman, light-eyed and hanging out a window, hair drifting free, wearing only a nightgown with her hand tied in a pouch. Shalon, he said. These are amazing. Some of the best work you've ever done. They're just quick sketches, Adolin. They're beautiful, he said, looking at another where he stopped. It was a picture of him in one of his new suits. Shalon blushed. Forgot that was there, she said, trying to get the sketchbook back. He lingered on the picture, then finally succumbed to her prodding and handed it back. She let out a sigh of relief. It wasn't that she'd be embarrassed if he saw the sketch of Kaladin on the next page. She did sketches of all kinds of people. But best to end on the picture of Adolin. Veil had been seeping through on that other one. You're getting better, if that's possible. Maybe. Though I don't know how much I can credit myself with the progress. Words of Radiance says that a lot of light weavers were artists. So the Order recruited people like you. Or the surge binding made them better at sketching, giving them an unfair advantage over other artists. I have an unfair advantage over other duelists. I have had the finest training since childhood. I was born strong and healthy, and my father's wealth gave me some of the best sparring partners in the world. My build gives me reach over other men. Does that mean I don't deserve accolades when I win? You don't have supernatural help. You still had to work hard. I know you did. He put his arm around her pulling her closer as they walked. Other Alethi couples kept their distance in public. 
but Adeline had been raised by a mother with a fondness for hugs. You know, there's this thing my father complains about. He asked what the use of shard blades was. Um, I think they're pretty obviously for cutting people up. Without cutting them, actually. So, but why only swords? Father asks why the ancient radiance never made tools for the people. He squeezed her shoulder. I love that your powers make you a better artist, Shalon. Father was wrong. The Radiance weren't just soldiers. Yes, they created incredible weapons, but they also created incredible art. And maybe, once this war is done, we can find other uses for their powers. Storms, his enthusiasm could be intoxicating. As they walked toward the tailor's shop, she was loath to part with him, though Vale did need to get on with her day's work. I can be anyone. Shalon thought, noticing a few joy spren blowing past, like a swirl of blue leaves. I can become anything. Adeline deserved someone far better than her. Could she become that someone? Craft for him the perfect bride? A woman that looked and acted as befitted Adeline Colin? It wouldn't be her. The real her was a bruised and sorry thing painted up all pretty but inside a horrid mess. She already put a face over that for him. Why not go a few steps farther? Radiant. Radiant could be his perfect bride, and she did like him. The thought made Shalon feel cold inside. Once they were close enough to the tailor's shop that she didn't worry about him being safe as he walked back on his own, Shalon forced herself to pull out of his grip. She held his hand a moment with her free hand. I need to be going. You aren't to meet the cult until sunset. I need to steal some food first to pay them. Still, he held to her hand. What do you do out there, Shalon? Who do you become? Everyone, she said. Then she reached up and kissed him on the cheek. Thank you for being you, Adolin. Everyone else was taken already, he mumbled. Never stopped me. He watched her until she ducked around a corner, heart thumping. Adolin Colin in her life was like a warm sunrise. Vale started to seep out, and she was forced to acknowledge that sometimes she preferred the storm and the rain to the sun. She checked at the drop point, inside a corner of a building that was now rubble. Here, Red had deposited a pack that contained Vale's outfit. She grabbed it and went hunting a good place to change. The end of the world had come, but that seemed most true after a storm. Refuse strewn about. People who hadn't gotten to shelters moaning from fallen shacks or alongside streets. It was like each storm tried to wipe them off Roshar and they only remained through sheer grit and luck. Now with two storms, it was even worse. If they defeated the Voidbringers, would the Everstorm remain? Had it begun to erode their society in a way that, win the war or not, would eventually end with them all swept out to sea? She felt her face changing as she walked, draining stormlight from her satchel. It rose in her like a flaring flame, 
before dimming to an ember as she became the people from the sketches Adolin had seen. The poor man, who tried doggedly to keep the area around his little pallet clean, as if to try to maintain some control over an insane world. The light-eyed girl who wondered what had happened to the joy of adolescence. Instead of her wearing her first hava to a ball, her family was forced to take in dozens of relatives from neighboring towns, and she spent the days locked away because the streets weren't safe. The mother with the child, sitting in darkness, looking toward the horizon and a hidden sun. Face after face, life after life, overpowering, intoxicating, alive, breathing and crying and laughing and being. So many hopes, so many lives, so many dreams. She unbuttoned her hava up the side, then let it fall. She dropped her satchel, which thumped from the heavy book inside. She stepped forward in only her shift, safe hand uncovered, feeling the wind on her skin. She was still wearing an illusion, one that didn't disrobe, so nobody could see her. Nobody could see her. Had anyone ever seen her? She stopped on the street corner, wearing shifting faces and clothing, enjoying the sensation of freedom, clothed yet naked skin shivering at the wind's kiss. Around her, people ducked away into buildings, frightened. Just another spren, Shalon Vale radiant thought. That's what I am. Emotion made carnal. She lifted her hands to the sides, exposed yet invisible. She breathed the breaths of a city's people. Mmm, Pattern said, unweaving himself from her discarded dress. Shalon? Maybe, she said, lingering. Finally, she let herself slip fully into Vale's persona. She immediately shook her head and fetched the clothing and satchel. She was lucky it hadn't been stolen, foolish girl. They didn't have time for prancing around from poem to poem. Vale found a secluded location beside a large gnarled tree whose roots spread all the way along the wall in either direction. She quickly rearranged her underclothing, then put on her trousers and did up her shirt. She pulled on her hat, checked herself in a hand mirror, then nodded. Right then, time to meet up with Vatha. He was waiting at the inn where Wit had once stayed. Radiant retained hope that she'd meet him again there for a more thorough interrogation. In the private room, away from the eyes of the fretting innkeeper, Vatha laid out a couple of spheres to light the maps he'd purchased. They detailed the manner she intended to hit this afternoon. They call it the mausoleum, Vatha explained as Vale sat. He showed her an artist's sketch he'd purchased, which was of the building's grand hall. Those statues are all soul-cast, by the way. They're favored servants of the house, turned to storming stone. It's a sign of honor and respect among light eyes. It's creepy, Vatha said. When I die, burn my corpse up right good. Don't leave me staring for eternity while your descendants sip their tea. Vale nodded absently, placing Shalon's sketchbook on the table. Pick an alias from this, 
This map says the larder is on the outside wall. Time is tight, so we might want to do this one the easy way. Have Red make a distraction, then use Shallan's blade to cut us an opening right into the food. You know, they're said to have quite the fortune at the mausoleum. The Tanette family riches are... He trailed off as he saw her expression. No riches, then. We get the food to pay the cult. Then we get out. Fine. He settled on the image of the man sweeping around his palate, staring at it. You know, when you reformed me from banditry, I figured I was done with stealing. This is different. Different how? We stole mostly food back then, too, Brightness. Just wanted to stay alive and forget. And do you still want to forget? He grunted. Nah, I suppose I don't. Suppose I sleep a little better now at night, don't I? The door opened and the innkeeper bustled in, holding drinks. Vatha yelped, though Vale turned with a droll expression. I believe, she said, I wanted to not be interrupted. I brought drinks, which is an interruption, Vale said, pointing out the door. If we're thirsty, we'll ask. The innkeeper grumbled, then backed out the door, carrying his tray. He's suspicious, Vale thought. He thinks we were up to something with wit and wants to find out what. Time to move these meetings to another location, eh, Vatha? She looked back at the table and found someone else sitting there. Vatha was gone, replaced by a bald man with thick knuckles and a well-kept smock. Shalan glanced at the picture on the table, then at the drained sphere beside it, then back at Vatha. Nice, she said. But you forgot to do the back of the head, the part not in the drawing. What? Vatha asked, frowning. She showed him the hand mirror. Why'd you put his face on me? I didn't, Vale said, standing. You panicked, and this happened. Vatha prodded at his face, still looking in the mirror, confused. I'll bet the first few times are always accidents, Vale said. She tucked the mirror away. Gather this stuff up. We'll do the mission as planned, but tomorrow you're relieved of infiltration duty. I'll want you practicing with your stormlight instead. Practicing. He finally seemed to get it, his brown eyes opening widely. Brightness. I'm no storming radiant. Of course not. You're probably a squire. I think most orders had them. You might become something more. I think Shalon was making illusions off and on for years before she said the oaths. But then it's all kind of muddled in her head. I had my sword when I was very young, and she took a deep breath. Fortunately, Vale hadn't lived through those days. Pattern hummed in warning. Brightness, Vatha said. Vale, you really think that I... Storms? He seemed like he was going to cry. She patted him on the shoulder. We don't have time to waste. The cult will be waiting for me in four hours and expect a nice payment of food. You going to be all right? Sure, sure, he said. The illusion finally dropped 
and the image of Vatha himself so emotional was even more striking. I can do this. Let's go steal from some rich people and give to some crazy people instead. <laughs>